0: I am beyond excited and honored to be recording the bio for Anna Quinlan because she has been my number one on my wish list of authors I wanted to have on this podcast from the time I started it three years ago. And finally I got to have her on and it was amazing and I loved it and it didn't disappoint me in any way as you will hear. And she has just been just one of my favorite authors of all time. Anyway, For those of you who don't know, Anna Quinlan is a novelist and journalist whose work has appeared on fiction, nonfiction, and self-help bestseller lists. She is the author of nine novels, Object Lessons, One True Thing, Black and Blue, Blessings, Rise and Shine, Every Last One, Still Life with Breadcrumbs, Miller's Valley, and Alternate Side. Her memoir, Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake, published in 2012, and was a number one New York Times bestseller. Her book, A Short Guide to a Happy Life, has sold more than a million copies. While a columnist at the New York Times, she won the Pulitzer Prize and published two collections, Living Out Loud and Thinking Out Loud. Her Newsweek columns were collected in Loud and Clear. Enjoy this episode. I hope you love it as much as I did. Welcome, Anna. Thank you so much for coming on Moms
1: Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks, Zibby. And that's really true, isn't it? (laughs) I would give somebody a book when they had little kids and say, put that away and in five or six years, you might be able to read it.
0: Maybe I should make like a little like time capsule box, right? Read later, you know, welcome new mom. And then you could just put the books inside.
1: (laughs) Well, that's probably true. I mean, you know, you could have two boxes. One box is the books that you will read over and over And over again, like Goodnight Moon or Madeline, so that when you're my age, you can recite them from memory. And the other are grown-up books that you will read when your kids are too busy to have anything to do with
0: (laughs) you. I listened, I half read, and then the other half listened to the audiobook of Nanaville. And Mm -hmm. I also, like many parents out there and grandparents, have Good Night Moon memorized and read it every single nap time and bedtime and everything. And just hearing you read it to to Arthur and just like hearing the words again and the sweetness of that moment of you guys on the chair. Oh my gosh, I was like in my car crying listening to this story. So thank you for that.
1: (laughs) It is so sweet, except that I can remember at a certain point when Arthur said to me, where is the telephone? And when I pointed it out, he looked at me quizzically because what is the telephone in Goodnight Moon is not what he has grown up with as a telephone.
0: Oh my gosh, so crazy. Everything looks.
1: Madeline, he can't understand why 12 little girls live all together without their mommy and daddy and with Miss Clavel.
0: Yes. My daughter was like, do I have to do that? Like, why, why are they going? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like they're already panicking about college. You know, I have a six-year-old, a seven-year-old and two 13-year-olds and the, you know, the little guys are like, well, we're just going to live here forever. And I'm like, yeah, you probably will. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. But yeah, so many books. I love that those books have stayed the same though. It's so nice that I know that like my grandparents read me the same books that I can read to my kids. There's something just so, what else is like that? That's just so generational and constant when everything else in the world changes so much.
1: Well, the one thing that I really love is a number of the books that I read Arthur are actual physical copies that I read to Quinn, Chris, and Maria when they were young. And at this point, they look like a middle school ate lunch on them. (laughs) I mean, they're really a wreck. But the fact that they are the same copies is so talismanic to me. I can almost feel myself reading them to my own kids at the same time that I'm reading them to my grandchildren.
0: It's so special. My mother has a lot of our same, a lot of the books she read to us that she reads to my kids. And when I go over there and see them, it just, it brings it all back for me. And then suddenly you're like that little kid again. And what am I doing with these kids who are like taller than I am? I don't know how it all happens. It's like ridiculous. And the great thing about hearing about grandparenting from you is that that I feel like I've been following, not in a creepy way, but because you've been writing about your parenting, your motherhood journey from the beginning. I feel like your kids have become characters in this narrative. And now that they have had kids, it just like everything is coming full circle with your living out loud to now it's like for anybody else. And I'm sure there are just bazillions of people who have followed you as I have, like, it's just, it's so amazing to see you go through this experience in the here and now and sort of follow you in real time. It's like you were were an Instagram poster before Instagram or something.
1: (laughs) Someone once, I think it was Lisa Belkin, the writer who once wrote that I was the first mommy blogger. Yes. And I must admit that when I was writing about the kids, when I was doing the Life in the 30s column at the New York Times, there wasn't a whole lot of that kind of writing going on and there was absolutely none of it going on at the New York Times. But you know, people will say to me even today, you made me feel less alone. Because of course, as we all know, motherhood can be so unbelievably isolating, even without a pandemic. And the thing I always say back to them is, you made me feel less alone because when i was writing these columns thinking does anyone care about this stuff and then the letters because it was still letters then <laughs> the letters would come pouring in i just would think there's a primal connection here that i need to feel every time i sit down at the computer and and it really it it really saved me in a way when when i had three little kids and you know Used to pretend to have to go to the bathroom so I could have two minutes alone, which of course is a complete illusion because you're in there for two minutes and suddenly you hear, Mommy, are you in there? Or
0: Mom, Mom, I'm in the bathroom. Like, now I'm in here.
1: How quickly we go from hoping that they will learn to say Mom to hoping that they won't say it for five (laughs) minutes.
0: Oh my gosh! So funny, wow. You know, you mentioned in your book also about the caretaking of children, like your the responsibility you feel for them not to get like for Arthur not to get hurt, for instance, when you're babysitting. is the wrong word, nana sitting. Versus how you felt about your own kids, who you, you glibly joke about taking to the emergency room or breaking a leg or whatever happened to your own kids. That's your and that's like your responsibility. But when you have your grandchild. And it's really, you know, you feel this extra layer and you referenced the child who was hit by the brick near your apartment building. And I actually had the author of, he wrote a memoir. I don't know if you, you probably know. Oh,
1: it's so beautiful. So beautiful, right? story. Ah. Yeah. That story. I mean, look, they're all hostages to fortune. That's what's so terrifying about being a mother. But, you know, if, if, if something... I'm not going to say something tragic because I can't even wrap my mind around that. You know, my my mother died when I was a teenager. And one of the ways I skated through life was that I used to think, okay, the worst thing that can ever happen to me has already happened to me. And then I had children (laughs) and realized that the second worst thing that could ever happen to me had happened to me. So I can never wrap my mind around anything really bad happening to my own kids, but you know a trip to the emergency room. I know how to handle that. Telling one of my sons that their child got hurt on my watch. I really don't know how to handle that. And I'm hoping I never have to.
0: Oh my gosh. We were dog sitting for my sister-in-law and her dog escaped out of our front gate, like, like before we even knew what to do. And next thing you know, like my husband's racing down the street and I'm jumping in the car and we're all like screaming and whatever. And anyway, eventually, well, to be honest, what happened is the dog just turned around and ran right back home while we were all frantic on the street. <laughs> but you know, my husband the whole time was just like, oh my gosh, how could I, how could I tell Stephanie if something happened to Luna? I mean, I could never live with myself. Like, I feel like he would have been more upset almost than her for that responsibility. So, I mean, that's only a dog but compared to a grandchild. It's just the the pressure of that caretaking and the weight of that responsibility.
1: Anyway. On the other hand, to get to do it is a gift. It really is. Not the dog
0: sitting. That was
1: not a gift. (laughs) No, to get to be a Nana. Oh man. It's so, so great to have that sense of, of the line of your family extending. And also both of my sons are aces fathers and to watch that, it's so hard to gauge whether you're doing a good job when you're a mother. You know, one day, one of them suddenly learns how to read and you think, oh, it's all happening. And then two days later, you know, one of them goes south for some reason. And and it's such a long span to do a job. it, it It's like it's as though you were building a house that took you 30 years to build. And after 30 years, you could finally say, oh, it looks good. And I like the kitchen, you know? So there are relatively few times when I sat there and thought I did a good job. And still when good things happen, part of me thinks they were born with a lot of the raw material. And I just weighed in some. But when I see my two sons being these fantastic fathers, there are moments when I think I did okay.
0: It's just so nice. There's just nothing better. I can't even imagine my sons having kids. My, kid, my my little guy just said to my daughter, like, you know, like, if we want to have babies, we're going to have to kiss lips. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, we've got a long way to go over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's, I mean, that's magical just to see it all come full circle like that. And you write so fun in such a funny, characteristically way about it. And I love your chapter called, did they ask you when you were, <laughs> Tell me, oh. tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's a pivotal moment in the book. I mean, and it's the one that most readers who are grandmothers have focused on. I mean, you know, to make it very short, my son and his fantastic wife were going to do something with their son that I did not agree with. So I told them that I didn't agree with it. And then they kept on with their plan to do this. And so then I told them again that I didn't <laughs> agree with it. And they continued with their plan. And finally, the third time, as I say in the book, Quinn pushed, didn't push back disrespectfully or in a mean fashion, but he pushed back hard. And I know and respect him. And so I backed off. But the next morning I was doing my morning power walk with my friend, Susan, who taught my sons when they were in elementary school and is the most wonderful person. And I told her this whole story thinking at the end she was gonna be totally team Anna. And there was a long silence. And then she said, did they ask you? And it was like a lightning bolt went off. And I thought, that's it. That's the question that you always have to ask yourself when you're a grandmother did they ask you? And if they didn't, just keep your mouth shut and back off. Because I think that sense of intrusion is what kills this relationship sometimes. And not the relationship between the Nana and the grandchildren. This is what, what did Paula Spann from the Times call it, a mediated relationship. This is a mediated relationship. I have this great relationship with my grandson and my granddaughter and my other grandson, which could be nipped in the bud at any moment by their parents. They, they are the people who give me permission to have this relationship. And I think when the relationship goes south, it's because the grandparents are not respectful of the mediators. Whether they're right or wrong doesn't matter. Respect really matters.
0: Your book is also teaching me how to do a better job with my own mother, right? And what I need to say to her, I mean, I know it was written from the point of view of a grandmother, but it's so helpful to, it's just so helpful from this way too, for me to know how she feels and how to communicate better with her about her role because of how you feel.
1: But that really interests me, Zibby, because one of the things that came up during the writing of the book and that people ask me about a lot is is it different when it's your son and daughter-in-law versus your daughter? Because I think a lot of mothers with their sons and daughter-in-law understand that despite all the changes in society, women still handle a lot of the social intercourse that we have. And that therefore, if you get on the wrong side of your daughter-in-law, you may really have undercut yourself. Whereas I think there may be more of a feeling that you can tell your daughter what you think without necessarily checking yourself in the same way.
0: There has not been a lot of checking. <laughs> that's why <laughs> your I think why not I, was listening. Like, I was like, I am going to take this book. And if somehow she hasn't read it, I'm going to put a little sticky on this section. <laughs> now She's gotten a lot better, but it's taken us, you know, 13 years. And I like to think I've broken her in for my brother and all of that, but you know, it, Grandparents don't, they also don't arrive with a guidebook, just like parents don't, right? We don't, they don't,
1: well, know what they're. Doing. I don't, uh, also, as I say in the book, I don't think a whole lot of us think about it. In other words, you meet women all the time who say to you, I've always wanted to be a mom, right? I've always thought about being a mom, of, of having kids. They don't really know what it's going to consist of until they're <laughs> actually doing it, but they've always wanted to do it. But I don't know very many people who over a span of time have said to themselves, someday I want to be a grandmother. You're a mom for a while. And of course, then your kids reach a certain age and you start to think, hmm. But we don't pregame it as much as we pregame motherhood. And I think the role models we have for it, well, I say this in the book. I mean, grandparents now are very, engaged many of them in the lives of their grandchildren. Uh, My grandparents saw us every Sunday, and they sat in the living room with a Manhattan, and we passed through, but they didn't, I mean, the idea of my grandfather building with Legos is pretty, pretty, unimaginable to me. So I think the way in which people are grandparents now is so different that there really isn't any template for people.
0: I remember saying something to my dad, because he's like, he said something like, Oh, this was when my older son was like a toddler. Like he hasn't like looked me in the eye or something like that. I was like, oh no, dad, you have to like get on the floor with him. And he's like, I don't have to do anything. I was like, okay. (laughs) But it's true. It's like right now, like to to interact with my son, that's what you had to do to keep his attention. And just to your your point about mother's not pre-gaming, when I was 19 years old and I had my first really serious boyfriend, serious enough that like my mom could meet his mom. I was 19 and we sat down in my apartment here in New York and literally sit down, like air still coming out of the cushions. And my mother leans forward and says, well, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be a grandmother.
1: Uh, And I was like, I'm assuming this is not the boyfriend who became the father of your children. No,
0: it was, this was like a decade before that. I wasn't, Uh uh-huh. So, some people, I think, maybe have stronger predilections, or <laughs> but in general, I am sure you are right that that is not something people think about. I feel like also there used to be not something It just seemed like it made you, women feel old to be considered grandmothers, right? And there's this, like anti ageist right? I don't know. I shouldn't
1: put words in your mouth well, so, so a lot of them still do. I mean, as as i as I said in Nanaville, I met a number of women who did not let their grandchildren call them grandma or nana or anything like that because it made them feel old. And first of all, I was astonished to discover that the average age of a grandmother in America is 50, which I suppose, you know, a hundred years ago we thought was old, but today we certainly don't think of as old. But Second of all, to have the privilege of living long enough to see your children's children. I I mean, some of the most full of life and full of brio and full of excitement people I met when I was on tour for Nanaville were the women who would come up to me and say, I'm a great grandmother. (laughs) And they obviously took so much pleasure in this. We have more great grandmothers in the United States than ever before in history, in part because of longer life expectancy, in large part because of longer life expectancy. So that sense of you know your your clan heading off into the future, I think to feel negative about that is very odd because it's so it's so life affirming at some level. I mean it's it's your life affirming in that you know that someday you will no longer be here, and yet all these people that are carrying some of your DNA will just be boogieing down the road. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was also something you mentioned in your book. All the co- like the tiny little characteristics that show up in your kids that you aren't expecting from other people in your family. It just it's yeah. something that just hadn't occurred to me until I was like, oh, I seem to have given birth to like my sister in law. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Some characteristics that just come through and you're sort of blindsided by it.
1: In a nice way. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really interesting just to watch the whole thing. It's been really interesting for me. I'm my father was from a very clannish Irish family, and my mother was from an Italian immigrant family, and so as compared to my other cousins who are 100 percent Irish we sort of were some melange. But now I have two grandchildren who are half Chinese and half Caucasian, and one grandchild who is a quarter black and then three quarters Caucasian. And to see that that gene pool mix is just fascinating to me. And it also makes me feel a little bit full of myself because I look at the three of them and think, this is America. <laughs> this is what America is going to look like, and that's kind of exciting.
0: And of course, you're like such an amazing grandmother that you learned Chinese and took lessons. And well, that's I, amazing. I tried. <laughs> oh,
1: that was one of the worst experiences of my life. I was so bad at, it. and I've I've maintained a few things. And the funny thing is, so so my youngest, of course, has no Chinese heritage at all, Jake. And the other night he was getting ready for his bath. And I said, you're going to get Guanglio Leo, Leo, (laughs) which is Mandarin for completely naked. And then I thought, I said, guys, I'm sorry. I I used Mandarin. And they said, no, no, we say Guanglio Leo to him too, because of, you know, Chris's older brother and and Arthur and Ivy, who Chris is really close to, he's just absorbed some of the, the reflexive Mandarin that we use for the kids. So I've held on to a little bit of it, but boy, was it a struggle. Well,
0: that's a really fun thing to say, Gwanda. Mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like I need to, that needs to be part of our
1: regular. Yep, Juan Leo, Leo. You know, why not every say it? It's time for bath.
0: <laughs> and one other thing I just loved about Nanavilla, and I know that you consider yourself a reporter first full stop. And I read what you posted recently on Facebook about, you know, you might not have living parents, but you'll always be a daughter and you might not work at a newspaper, but you'll always be a reporter. And you applied that, like the mixing of all the data in with of your personal story so seamlessly that it's like you almost wouldn't have caught it if you weren't looking for it, right? You, it was just so seamless how you would put in like statistics about grandparents, like the ones you were just reciting or like the average age of this, or how many people with second languages and, you know, just all these things that I think made the book feel even more sort of intellectual, if you will, or like informative than even, than just the memoir in and of itself. So I thought that was just so neat how you did that.
1: Oh, thanks. I, You know, I always feel like I need something to undergird myself. And also, this became something I was deeply interested in. I mean, the more I thought about it, the more... I knew people who were doing it. I read about people who had custody of their grandchildren because of of deployments overseas or or drug issues or that kind of thing. And it just seemed to me to be something that I had to drill down on a little deeper than my own experience to kind of abet my own experience. Hmm. Although it would have been great either way, I'm sure. But
0: (laughs) so you mentioned also in some interview I read about how this was such a pleasure to write and how, you know, some grandparents have scrapbooks and you have a manuscript and like, you're like, this is so easy. It was such a joy. So how did writing this book compare to like your 8,000 other books and your novels and your other, you know, stories and short guy to a happy Life," like all these other books, how did this one fit in with it? And also like what's going on now, like that you finished this one, what's to come?
1: Well, On the one hand, it was incredibly pleasurable and at some level easy because anecdotes about what a little boy is doing are essentially, most of the time, kind of charming and interesting to write about. On the other hand, it was anxiety producing because the only way that I agreed to do the book was if Quinn and Lynn would read it in manuscript and pass on it. I mean, you know, books come and go, but your kids are forever. And I did not want to alienate anyone. And I think because I'd already developed a knack for not saying too much or saying the wrong thing when I was writing life in the 30s where I had to protect them myself because they couldn't read. Neither one of them had any objection to anything that I'd done. And the thing that was thrilling for me was that as they were reading the manuscript, I would hear them saying, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I forgot about that. And I thought, well, if this book is, among other things, an aid memoir for Quinn and Lynn about Arthur's earliest years, that will have been worth the entire price of admission. Oh.
0: That's so nice, I know it all goes by in such a haze. It's like so hard to hang on to any of those memories. Oh, I know, I know, so what are you working on now? What's coming next for you? I'm
1: working on another novel, and I'm also working on a book about writing that I'm almost done. I'm working on a book about writing for civilians <laughs> not it's it's about how we've sort of lost writing. We've lost letters, we've lost journals because of the press of technology, and how we're not only a country but a A species that finds new ways of doing things and then shoves the old ways aside, even though the old ways have something important to them. And I really feel as though writing used to be just the purview of the aristocracy and the clergy, right? It was siloed in that way. And I feel like we've gone back to siloing it in some way as only writers do it. People will say to me, Oh, I had this incredible experience. And I say, you should write that down. They say, oh, but I'm not a writer. And I think, but everybody's a writer in the same way that everybody's a teacher. Now, everybody's not a classroom teacher and everybody's not a professional writer, but civilians have something to teach other people and they have something to say in their writing. And that's what this book is. Wow.
0: That sounds great. <laughs> well, this this kind of dovetails with that question, but what advice would you have for aspiring authors? I'm sure you get asked this often, but I have to ask.
1: It's pretty simple, actually. You put your butt in a chair. I mean, people think that you wait for inspiration. I don't know where inspiration lives, but she's not coming. People think you have to have something important to write about. In this book, I go back to the diary of Anne Frank. So much of it is is ephemera about the cat, about the food, about about the curtains on the windows that eventually together makes a, a picture of real life. And so I think you have to sit down and you have to begin because you will tell yourself, as I do every morning, that it's not good. But what happens sometimes is that you if you write enough not good, eventually good appears. And then you can get rid of all the not good stuff and start with that one sentence or that one paragraph that sort of took wing.
0: And still you feel like you're sitting down and writing not good after all this.
1: Oh, terrible. Oh gosh, it's so, (laughs) writing is a confidence exercise every day. And in some ways, when you've been doing it for a long time, that gets harder because you think, well, it's not like, whatever it was I did before, and therefore, people won't like it. But, uh, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is, eventually, what you have to make your peace with is having an audience of one. And that one has to be yourself. And you have to trust that if you are talking successfully to yourself, that there will be other people out there to whom you will be talking. And that's that's one of the things I learned when I was doing the Life in the 30s column when I was young and, and the boys were young. I kept thinking, who cares about any of this? And then the readers replied, we do. And that made all the difference.
0: Wow. That's like when I post on Instagram, I'm like, I can't be the only one who's feeling like this. I can't be the only exhausted mom at like nine o'clock on a Saturday who wants to shoot herself right now. (laughs) I mean, not really, but like there must be other people out there. It can't just be me. And then as soon as you share it, you realize, no, there's everybody else feeling exactly the same way. And
1: how nice to know that. Well, it's interesting. I saw something on a website today. I can't remember which one it was where a mom said, I'm sorry the pandemic is ending because- I don't want to go out of the house to an office again. And I don't want to spend less time with my kids. And I don't want to wear dress-up clothes. And I don't want to wear shoes with heels again. And it was a kind of a curse saying: the way we lived before wasn't what it needed to be. The way we've been living had a lot of downsides, but it had some upsides too. And I thought it was a really interesting take on what's been going on in the world. On that sense, you know, people felt like they were trapped at home, some of them, but some of them liked what they did while they were there.
0: Wow. I'm sure we'll get a lot of very interesting reflections when this whole thing Completely ends if and when. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much. Thank you for chatting with me about your grandmothering experience and your writing and all the rest. I've been a fan of yours for so long, so I just thank you so much. Made my day.
1: Thank you, Zibby, and I'll be happy to sign that book for your mother if she reads it.
0: Totally. Oh my gosh, she would be so excited. So thank you, <laughs> <laughs> and I would be excited too. Okay, all right. Thank you so much. Take care.
1: Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye bye.